Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with everybody again today. So today what we're up to is we're starting a new series here at Revolution, and it's called Together. And I didn't think about this before I was putting this series together, but we did a series earlier in the year called Living Together, which I, I just, this is a mistake on my part. <laughs> we should have come up with a better name, something different, but, you know, you wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't just said it. So, anyways, the heartbeat of this series is that discipleship, um, which has been our theme for this year, in which we have defined um, throughout the year as learning to walk after the way of Jesus. The discipleship is a communal calling, at least as much as it is an, an individual calling. And the reason for this is, of course, that the way of Jesus is always, it is always leading us towards relationships, right? Not only the relationship with him, but also relationships with others. And from the very beginning, Jesus' story is one about giving up the security that we think we can find in isolation and choosing, right, the challenges and the hardships and even the suffering that comes along with sharing your life with other people. So to spend a year thinking about discipleship in individual terms, like what I can, what I can do to know God more deeply or what I can do to to imitate him more fully in my life, to do this in individual terms is, I think, to risk missing the forest for the trees here. But if that's the case, right, if we're going to talk about discipleship communally, it makes moments like this one, where I'm up here by myself talking to you as individuals about the stuff that I thought about or learned this week, and then encouraging you as individuals to make small but important changes in your lives, it makes this whole setup, I think, a bit confusing. Like what can you learn, right, in something like a sermon about what we need to be doing? Does any community actually grow in situations like this one? I spent a lot of time thinking about that this week, and my mind went to two places. The first of them was, of course, the example that Jesus sets for us when he is working to forge his own community with his disciples. And the second... The second place my mind went was to my own past experiences in teams, right? At work or in school or even in previous churches. What did those communities do to get everybody on the same page and pulling in the same direction? How did they forge a sense of real belonging? And the answer, of course, as you all already know, is team building exercises sponsored by your HR, <laughs> right? Trust falls, those work. Corporate retreats, the best of them, high adventure ropes courses, right? Yes. All right, I'm joking, I'm jo joking just a little bit. But here's the thing, right? As cliche as those things might be, it is true that the communities many of us are parts of do use these kinds of things to accomplish something similar to what we are trying to accomplish here today and in this series. But what exactly is that thing that they're accomplishing and how do those things work, right? Let's consider the ropes course. I think we have a pick. Yeah, great. Have any of you ever done one of these? Yes. Ooh, yes. good. Not as many hands, or some of you are just lying. Oh, never mind. Everybody has done one. Great. You guys are missing out. All right. Here's the basic idea, right? What companies and youth groups and other groups are doing when they strap on those harnesses at the ropes course is they are recontextualizing your fear. 
That's what this does. It recontextualizes your faith. See, the reality of every community is that it requires trust in order to be healthy. But there are all sorts of mechanisms that we can use as individuals to bypass trust in order to fake health in our community. In a work environment, this can look like blind obedience or professional competition or maybe creating a silo right, where you can work in peace. And all those things, all those strategies that we, we develop as workers or as, as people in a community, those things work by camouflaging our fears about trusting each other, by changing the subject. So we think things like, well, I don't have to trust my boss, right? I just have to do what she says. Or I don't have to trust my coworkers, right? I just have to outperform them. Or I don't have to trust the mission of my company, because I can just do my job. The organization in those contexts right, will look like it's doing just fine, but there's a stagnancy that's taking root like under the surface. And so when HR takes everybody out to the high ropes course, what they're doing is they are forcing people to be afraid together. They're forcing people to be afraid together, to see each other's fear and their discomfort. And since everybody on the team has to go through it, we get this glimpse of each other's weaknesses. And the reason the ropes course works better than just like getting called out in a team meeting is because the ropes course is not actually part of your job. So you can be afraid there without feeling like a failure. You can practice trust without hurting your ego. And you can ask questions without looking completely like an idiot. And as it turns out, the way Jesus leads his disciples anticipates a lot of these same <coughs> strategies. Jesus challenges his friends to encounter their fears, but he doesn't use their fear to embarrass them. And he invites his friends to ask questions, but he's gracious towards them when they're slow to understand. And he cultivates their trust, not by demanding their trust, but by trusting them first. So the big idea this morning is that we can build a healthier community together by weaving these same values into the fabric of our culture here at Revolution, right? The, the we in all this is critical. These aren't things that I can do. These aren't things that our leadership team can do. They aren't things any of us can do individually. They're things we have to do together. They are core convictions, right, that we have to share. And if we do, learn to share these core convictions, I think we'll see real transformation and real growth. Now, there are dozens of places that we could look to see how Jesus cultivates health among the community of his disciples, but many of the lessons of Jesus are crystallized in this last pastoral moment that he has with them on the night before his arrest. The gathering here, the last gathering of the disciples before Jesus' arrest is called the Last Supper. And the most expansive account of the Last Supper we have is found in John's Gospel. And according to John's Gospel, the evening begins quite strangely, right? The disciples are sitting around the table, and then out of nowhere, Jesus stands up, and he takes off his coat, and he ties a towel around himself. And then John writes, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Now, 
premise of my argument here for the next 10 minutes. I need to sell it to you before we can even get into this or this isn't going to go anywhere. The premise of my argument is that this is Jesus' version of a high ropes course. That it might not seem all that frightening to you, but that it would have been frightening to the disciples. Let's take a closer look at what he's doing, right? So for three years, the disciples have been following Jesus in the position of a rabbi. That's his job to them. And what that means is that they have recognized him, first and foremost, as an expert teacher of the Jewish law. And what initially drew them away from their various careers and into his camp, right, was a conviction that Jesus knew something incredible. And then that conviction that he knew something special was matched by a desire to follow after him so that they might then learn that special thing that Jesus knows. Now, Jesus goes on to behave in strange ways for somebody in this cultural position. The conventional approach to being a rabbi would be to embody holiness, which we talked about last week, that being as of God, that set apart as of God thing. So the rabbi is supposed to embody this, to take on the air of somebody who's set apart, and then the rabbi kind of deigns to allow the disciples to imitate them in that path. In the first century, of course, this is going to be understood quite literally. You're going to imitate the rabbi by following literally after him. Disciples then would strive to copy everything about their master down to the length of their footsteps. And the rabbi taught by, his, by example, right, in his behavior and by illuminating the mysteries of scripture in conversation. And so in this arrangement, the rabbi is in every sense above the disciples. He's meant to be. And it is their job, right, as the people that are learning from him to feed, to shelter, and to serve him. But throughout these three years with the disciples, Jesus has never actually taken this approach. He has been uncharacteristically warm, unusually inviting, and inexplicably involved in the lives of his friends. Indeed, he sees them as friends and talks to them and calls them his friends. But even that bit of like boundary breaking between them doesn't prepare the disciples for this particular moment at the Last Supper when their master doesn't just take on the role of a friend, right, but takes on the role of a servant to them. And so without warning, he doesn't like preface this, at least in the account we have in John, Jesus stands up, pours a bowl of water, grabs a towel, and begins to scrub the dirtiest parts of their bodies. And I said that this was his ropes course because what this action does, right, to the disciples is it recontextualizes their fear. It recontextualizes their fears. As Jesus' students, these guys surely had tons of fears that they had learned to hide in their three years with him. Fears that they weren't learning fast enough, right? Or, or fears that others in the group were outperforming them. We see that competitive thing happening between the disciples all the time. Or, or even fears that the thing Jesus is asking them to do is something that's beyond what they can do. And maybe even beyond what they really want to do. But over those three years, these guys have certainly learned to camouflage these fears at least as well as you and I do at our jobs. But when Jesus starts to scrub their feet, they're like surprised, taken aback, and they don't know what the heck is going on, right? So it upsets them. And as usual, right, in the account here, Peter is the one who becomes our spokesperson. So in verse 6, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
And that's a silly question because he's in the process of washing his feet. So it's clear what the answer is. But the fear, I think, is evident in his use of the title Lord. Lords don't serve. So Peter's confused and he's even upset, right? He seems to be wondering in this moment, is this something I'm supposed to allow? Is this a test that Jesus is giving me or giving us to see if we know who's who in this relationship? Is he even calling us out for being a little too like friendly over the last three years in the way that we've had the relationship? Like, is this one of those things where he's kind of saying to us, like, you guys think you're the bosses around here, so like, how does it feel to really be the boss? Like, he's shaming them in some way. And so he's anxious, and he uses that Lord title to make sure Jesus knows, like, I, I still know who you are and, like, what is supposed to happen. But when he does this, Jesus immediately answers Peter in this interesting way, and in this, what I would consider, like, a loop of perfect reassurance. Because what he says to him is, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. You don't know now, but you will know later. Not my question is, do you see how loving that response actually is? Because what Peter and the other disciples fear in this moment, and seemingly always, is Jesus' disappointment with them. And they worry that he's grown weary of them at some point in their foolishness. And, and this is why that, that fear that Jesus is going to get sick of you is why Peter in particular is always trying so hard to impress him with these right answers, right? He's thirsty, as we would say it nowadays, right? He's thirsty. But the two key words in what Jesus says are now and later. You don't get it now, but later you will. And that means that there is going to be a later. Jesus knows that Peter is confused, but he's promising to be patient with him. And he's communicating, hey, you're not on thin ice in this relationship. You don't know now. Eventually you will. I'll still be here. So by washing his disciples' feet, Jesus does something, sure, on the surface that is literally welcoming to them. It's a courtesy to wash feet, something that you would do for a guest. But the bigger point he's communicating is that this welcome won't wear out. Disciples can't learn this if their fear isn't confronted and exposed. But with it out in the open, right, with their fear out in the open, there's an opportunity for profound reassurance of the very thing that's like deep down in them that they're worried about. When we think about being a welcoming community here at Revolution, we need to expand our imagination, right, beyond being friendly and nice to folks who walk through the door. And that stuff is great. Like being nice people is great. But we need to remember something that most of us, if we've been here for a while, we might have forgot. And that is that showing up to any new place is freaking scary. Everybody who ever walks in here or visits a small group is stepping out, stepping way out of their comfort zone. And although it certainly helps when people do that to be nice, right, what really separates a healthy community from a community that's just getting by is our willingness to be patient and reassuring along with being kind. When somebody is confronting their fears with you, 
We need to remember that 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 boldness on their part creates one of these fragile little moments where deep comfort can be extended. So how do we foster that deep comfort? I think one thing we can do is we can do it by demonstrating patience along with that kindness. We need to communicate that there is no timetable for belonging. There's nothing anybody needs to do in order to be accepted. That every time you walk through a door, right, your feet will get washed. Now you might not understand, but later you will. And that offer of later, people need to understand that never expires. There are folks who visit this church once and then don't show back up for six months, right? And that's okay. There are folks who leave our community because they're not sure it's the right fit and then come back years later. And that's okay. Everybody's feet get washed every time as if it's the first time. We need to remember that even the most hesitant step towards belonging is a step that takes enormous courage. And it can be a value in this church community to meet that courage with eager reassurance and generous patience. That made, I read for a strong, that made sense a little bit? Okay, that's point one. We're gonna keep rolling. The second thing, right, is that Jesus challenges his friends to encounter their fears, but he doesn't use them to embarrass them. He also invites them to ask questions He is gracious with them when they're slow to understand. Let's look a little further into the story. So Peter says to him, after Jesus says that he will understand later, Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. This is a great, like Peter back and forth. And Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet but is entirely clean, and you are clean, though not all of you. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had reclined again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? So, because Peter is still Peter, which means he's always excited to shout out what he thinks he has learned in any scenario, he does that amazing about face that we just laughed at, right? At first he insists Jesus can't wash his feet, Because Jesus is his master, and then when Jesus tells him that what he wants is for Peter to accept this act of kindness, then Peter, like, pendulum swings, he goes entirely the other way, like, wash my whole body. And we can imagine as he's doing that, right, Jesus kind of smiling and rolling his eyes. But he is also characteristically patient. And he does this thing that reminds me of, like, it's a deflection, right? It reminds me of the kind of thing you do when your kids are asking too many questions where he tells them like a riddle that the more I thought about it, the more this week, the more I realized like there's no answer. This is absolutely him just distracting everybody for a minute. <laughs> he says, when, it, when is a bathed person unclean is basically how the riddle takes shape. And this shuts Peter up for a while. But after Jesus is finished, he does something else that we can learn from, right? He pauses and he asks everybody what they're thinking. Now, one of the essential truths in education is that a person who discovers the solution to a question themselves will remember it far longer than a person who simply memorizes it or like memorizes the right answer for a test, right? Discovery versus memorization. And Jesus lives by this principle, and we see that same principle at work here. Because although he could just jump to an explanation for what this foot washing stuff is about, he is patient with his friends and waits for them to try and figure it out. Gives them a chance to try and figure it out. 
And I would contend this puts us back on the high ropes course again. When you're in the office at your job, you learn how to hide your uncertainty. We all do. Learn how to hide our uncertainty. But when you're up on that wire, you can't secretly Google like what to do when no one's looking. So a powerful combination of things has to happen. On the one hand, you have to try and figure a thing out on your own. And on the other hand, if you get stuck, you have to ask for help. And of course, both of these things are happening in full view of everybody. And now that's scary to like risk that uncertainty in front full view of everyone. But it's also, I think, a powerful lesson in community because healthy groups depend on curiosity, but not just curiosity for its own sake, a curiosity that is met with grace by the community. To kind of put a little more teeth on that, as a church community, we have for a long time placed a high value on embracing our uncertainty, particularly when it comes to the grand and holy mysteries of the God that we worship. And that's great. I love that we're a church where uncertainty isn't something that we're afraid of. But I wonder, do we sometimes love curiosity so much as a principle that we lose interest in actually following any of the places that it might lead us to? The power of Jesus' example here is that he doesn't say, right, like, oh, you'll never figure it out anyways. It's a mystery. You'll never get it. What he says is, do you know what I have done to you? Which implies that there is an answer. There is a thing that could be known. They don't know it now, and that's okay. What's remarkable is that Jesus is going to be patient as his disciples look for it. Now, as a community, then, we need to care as much about patience, I think, as we do about curiosity. And you might be thinking right now, like, this is one, a repeat of your first point, and second, a little too abstract. So let me ground this for you in a way that is, that is very practical for this church. I want to know, do you really believe that people you adamantly disagree with about culture, politics or doctrine can change their minds. Do you believe that changing minds is even possible? And if you do, do you trust that fostering curiosity is enough to make that happen? And as you're thinking about other people right now, flip it back on yourself. Do you still believe that you are fully committed to asking questions and seeing your own opinions change. Because this is a phenomenally hard thing to do. And although fostering curiosity is an important first step, if we don't foster curiosity within a culture that is patient and gracious and trusting, then we are sabotaging that whole effort. The trick that we fall for, right, is believing that we don't have time for that. That we don't have time to be patient with people. Things are too urgent. Living in a country where we have elections every four years makes this worse, right? We feel that clock ticking. If people don't change their mind now, then we're gonna run out of time. So you know what, actually forget it. You don't need to ask any more questions. Just shut up and do what I said. The issues feel too urgent. But we can remember like not just what Jesus is doing here, but when. 
Because he is showing patience with his disciples on the very same night that he's going to leave. Three years he's been with them. For three years they haven't gotten it. We are at the zero hour. The clock is ticking. And even then, Jesus is like, take a second. What do you think I'm up to? Patience is part of Jesus' passion. And patience needs to be part of ours too. So we've seen two things. We've seen Jesus confront his disciples' fear, and we've seen him foster their curiosity while meeting both of those things with patience and grace. The last lesson here is that Jesus cultivates their trust, and he does that by trusting them first. So back to John. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Now, our time is running short. So I'm going to cut to the chase here. You cannot build trust without trust. We can't build trust without trust. The boss who sends you across that high ropes course without doing it themselves is undermining the lesson that they're trying to share. The pastor, right, who asks for your vulnerability without being vulnerable herself is betraying the value. The church that preaches self-sacrifice, right, in your lives, but then goes on to exist for purely its own sake, is missing the point. Before Jesus asks Peter to wash anybody else's feet, Peter gets his feet washed. The value Jesus is trying to teach extends the value that he is already willing to live and to die for. Our purpose today is to talk about how we build a discipling community together, right? It's not to talk about church growth or an attractive mission or appealing Sunday service. The goal is for us to genuinely and deeply forge a local church where transformation happens in people's lives and we walk together towards becoming the kind of body that God intends for us to be. And I am a part of that, and you are also a part of that. But what we are focusing on in this series is not what I'm going to do or what you're going to do. It's what we are going to choose to do. And I think where those intersect is when we ask, what kind of a culture are we willing to tolerate? What kind of a culture are we going to cultivate together? I can stand up here and I can articulate things, but the vision is being entrusted to all of us to see it through. It's our collective responsibility to hold true to these principles. It can't just be stuff I lecture you about or that three or four of you do. It has to be something that's woven into the fabric of how everybody who's here sees and and considers and, and lives out what it means to be here. No cracks, right? It has to be something we're all bought into. So how do we do that? How do we share this? How do we meet fears with reassurance and meet questions with patience and meet trust with trust, how do we do that stuff together? My hunch, and we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead, but my hunch today is that we start by remembering something important, which is that we're all disciples too. That this vision of like how to be a community or a church isn't something that starts with us. The challenge and the invitation, these things don't start with this community revolution. It's just one church in a long story in history of churches. 
And our goal is to be a gathering of Jesus-minded people being forged into a Jesus-hearted community, which means we can't just be Jesus-minded forever. We have to pour that into something. We have to allow ourselves to be stitched together here. We can face our own fears, confront our own competitive or proud impulses, and lay them down to each other. That's the first lesson the first week here. The challenge is to allow ourselves to be stitched together. The same things that we're inviting new people to do, right, to trust, to be vulnerable, to step up, have to be things that we're already doing, not just outward-facing, but inward-facing, in our relationships with each other. So there's not a really punchy close here. What I just want to say is this. Let's take this week and take this series over the next four weeks, right, as a chance to learn how to do that to open ourselves up to doing that. It's going to be messy, right? If everybody in here starts being vulnerable at once, it's going to get, like, pretty chaotic. That's okay. We're going to meet that messiness with patience and with grace. But I think if we can learn to serve each other, I think what we will discover is the unity that we're actually seeking, right? The community that we long for and that we're meant for.